The Flight Deck is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you to the donors who sustain the Museum of Flight. To support this podcast and the museum's other educational initiatives, visit museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. We're a little past the halfway point of season three of the podcast where we're sharing LGBTQ plus stories in aerospace. And today we're welcoming two distinguished artists to the podcast. Dr. Marcus Red and Mikkel Awuna are black, queer, Pittsburgh-based multidisciplinary artists who weave indigenous African cosmic stories into their work. A recent film they directed, The Primordial House, is a great example of this. It references everything from modern photography of deep space phenomenon to the connections the Igbo people have had to the Sirius star system since ancient times to the celestial stylings of black jazz artist Sun Ra. They joined me for a conversation about their work and the ways that sky stories and space exploration have shaped African storytelling for millennia. Please welcome to the show two co-founders of Rainbow Serpent, Marcus and Mikkel. Welcome. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Do you mind taking a moment to introduce each of you've co-founded this together, but you're artists and, and thinkers in your own right. Can you just share a little bit about yourselves for our audience? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having us. My name is Mikkel Awuna. I'm a Nigerian-American multimedia artist and engineer born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I also currently serve as the president of the City of Pittsburgh's Public Art and Civic Design Commission, and I'm also the co-founder of Rainbow Serpent, a Black LGBTQ arts nonprofit. And with my own work, I really focus on this intersection between art, technology, and African cosmologies, and work across a variety of media from photography to sculpture, live performance, and film as well. And my name is Marcus Red. I'm originally from Macon, Georgia. I describe myself as a traditional African cosmologist, a multimedia artist, and an independent scholar, currently based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I co-founded Rainbow Serpent with Mikkel. I would say my work in general is about trying to revive the aesthetic splendor, the scientific complexity, and spiritual power of African cosmologies and traditional knowledge systems. Now, for each of you, I'm curious what your earliest memory is of looking up at the night sky. That's a great question, you know, and I think I think I have my most vivid, early vivid memory of the night sky, and it was when I was in my village in Nigeria. And there is a very, very rural area of Nigeria. There's no, like the, there's literally no electricity. Um, and so it's just complete darkness, complete blackness surrounding you there. You see the tree, the tree, you can just see the shadows of the trees, you hear all of the animals, and you look up and then you just have this stunning night sky. So that was probably the most early memory I have of really thinking about the complexity of our relationship with the cosmos and the thinking about the smallness of myself with relationship to this 
divine um, being that surrounds us and that we're inextricably connected to as well. I don't know if I have an earliest memory of looking at the sky, but I guess like Mikkel, I will give you my most vivid memory. So from 2013 to 2015, I lived in Sedona, Arizona, and that's where I really developed a lot of uh, meditation protocols, did a lot of ritual, and really tried to dive deeply, more deeply into some of the traditional African systems that I was working with from West African and ancient Egyptian contexts. And I remember being struck by how dark the city was. And of course, Sedona is very close to Flagstaff, Arizona, where the Lowell Observatory is, which is where Pluto was discovered. And because that area is so important for space investigation, there are all of these ordinances in the city that um, legislate a certain level of darkness and in the night sky to really um, explicitly minimize light pollution. And I remember the first night I was there just being overwhelmed because I had never seen so many stars before in one place. I mean, the whole mantle of the sky looked like it was illuminated. And I think then I could understand how shamans in ancient contexts could feel individual stars speaking to them. I could understand how people could develop meditative relationships to certain areas of the night sky or feel that different parts of the sky had different energetic signatures. Um, so I would say living in that part of Arizona opened up the larger cosmos to me in a way that it had never been done before in any other part of the country that I lived in. And, and even today, I'm still very struck by by those memories of being and feeling surrounded, completely immersed and surrounded by a whole other world. Isn't it funny how old we are when we have that memory, right? Like, I don't know what my earliest memory is, just like the two of you, but I remember like distinctly in my, I was maybe 18 or 19 and I was working at a summer camp and a group, the, the kids wanted to go lay out in the field and look up at the stars. And so I went with them and like, it was the first time that I, I, I maybe really sat and did that. And people just don't do that. I like, that's why I like to ask that question. I wonder for our listeners, when was the last time you stopped and looked at the night sky? I asked that also of you two because stars and and the sky really seems to play a big role in your art um we're, we're going to talk more about kind of the broader context of afrofuturism in in a few minutes but first I, I would love to learn a little bit more about your work and and what you do i came to know you through a film that you made pretty recently why don't you share a little bit about that yeah so we met really serendipitously at mit media lab Beyond the Cradle Conference, which was really a convergence of the minds of people thinking about the future of space travel and humanity's relationship with space. And we, Marcus and I, were there presenting on the Space and the Arts panel and thinking about what is the role of the arts in terms of articulating and understanding our relationship with the cosmos. And we have been really thinking about that from a traditional indigenous African perspective. What have been the indigenous African understandings of space, our connection with, with space as, human, um, as a um, 
as a human species. And so we created a film. It's a 30-minute experimental dance film entitled Obiumbu, The Primordial House, which retells a West African Igbo myth of the creation of the universe, which when we were doing our research is really fascinating because this entire myth takes place with these two primordial androgynous deities emerging from the primordial androgynous blackness of space. And there's this sacred house located in the Sirius star system. And so there's this in, there's this deep connection and understanding from this Igbo cosmology around humanity's relationship with Sirius, this entire um, panoply of deities and the um, creation of the universe itself emerging from the star system. And so the we included a pr- projection of the film within the um, w- for the conference. And to create the effect, we hand-painted the model's bodies with fluorescent paints. And we designed special ultraviolet light sources that would illuminate the model's bodies in the cosmic patterns that 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 um, um, that you have these glowing celestial forms on their body. So you see these literally these glowing celestial, semi-human, set, like, but mostly divine figures that are featured within the film. Yeah, and subsequently we've done other kinds of projects as well. So um, our most recent project premiered in July. It was a live performance called The Four World Ages, which is a sequel of sorts to The Primordial House. So The Four World Ages basically tells the story of humanity in the stages from creation, which is the age of divine unity, through an age of separation, an age of civilization, and our current age of chaos. Um, And we're, again, drawing on this Nigerian Igbo cosmological system to understand this development of humanity. Uh, we found four dancers that we worked with and a light engineer from who's based in California. And we presented this, this narrative with some spatial augmented reality components, some multimedia projections, etc. I mean, it was very interesting because it was also thinking about how humanity has changed in our relationship to the stars and the larger cosmic expanse has changed over time as well from this age of divine unity where human beings, according to this conceptualization, could literally fly between earth and heaven at will and did not have fully material bodies, um, did not have to um, eat food because people were sustained directly through the breath of the creator down to our current age of chaos where We've lost our divine connection where we are alienated from divine knowledge systems. And of course, we live in a time of destruction and war, et cetera. Um, But it doesn't end on a pessimistic note because history is cyclical according to this idea and that we are now on the threshold to a new age of divine unity where we will reclaim our place, if you will, as cosmic divine beings. So that was one project we've done. Um, maybe you could talk about Anatomy of the Human. Yeah, and I think, so one of the additional projects that we recently released, um, we um, with the Andy Warhol Museum and Citizens, we released a 91 foot by 27 foot mural installation that's right across from the Andy Warhol Museum. And the series entitled Anatomy of the Human also uses this ultraviolet imaging techniques that we've developed where we're able to showcase these 
um, celestial bodies glowing fluorescent, fluorescent black bodies. And we use long exposure photography to showcase multiple ephemeral um, visions of the human form. And what that work is doing is thinking about within traditional African systems, we had this understanding that we didn't just have a physical body, but we existed simultaneously on multiple, dimen multiple dimensional planes as well. And so we had four spirit bodies within the Igbo cosmology, for example. And so the photography is also thinking about how to elevate and revive this multi-dimensional multi African understanding of humanity and the human soul itself. So we're really thinking again about these... Um, ancestral traditions and connecting them to the contemporary across these various bodies of work. You know, I'm thinking in a museum context of all the ways that museums, as we've talked about before on the podcast, um, I'll leave some links to episodes if folks are interested, that museums are, are rooted in white supremacy and colonialism. That's, that's how they got their start. Th these are stories that in our culture here in the United States, it's kind of awareness is built through museums, or museums are also party of to, to erasing them and suppressing these stories. I'm just curious what your experience in a museum context has been with learning about African cosmologies and what have what have you seen that surprised you in good or bad ways? And how, how have you encountered that in a museum context? I think one of the things that we have seen and in our work with museums try to counter is a lot of the times you will have these really sacred indigenous um, symbols, these sacred indigenous, you know, pieces of, you know, quote unquote, uh, of artwork that are removed from context of what is the actual spiritual purpose of this of this object how was it used for ancestral purposes for ritual purposes how does it encode all of this knowledge of the cosmos when it's used in particular ways and so we think that removal of context it just it appears as an object and it's stripped of this the deep spiritual knowledge and spiritual purpose of the of its creation, and so one of the things that we did, for example, we recently have um, what's currently on view an installation at the North Carolina Museum of Art, and we included a large scale projection of our film um, Obi Wan with the Primordial House, and we also constructed there's a sacred pillar chamber within the within the film, which is also in the myth that we reconstructed in the museum space. And we, and we covered it with uli, which is a sacred art form from southeastern Nigeria. And then we took from the museum's collection a Dogen doorway and a Dogen lock. And we actually placed that at the threshold of the sacred space that we were creating with the film, with the mystic ideograms. We also have within the film mystic um, Dogen ideograms that are really intentionally included, um, Dogen, ideogram, Dogen writing as well that's really it's encoded within a really, a really intentional way and so we included those within the space to connect them to their actual divine sacred purpose and we were really intentional with the use of the labels to connect it to this larger system because these objects do not just exist in a vacuum they are connected to a large deep cosmology and understanding of the cosmos itself yeah, and I would say 
we try to work through within and without institutions. Um, so on one hand, as Mikhail described, I mean, I think we are very intentional about trying to transform museum spaces that we're in as much as we can to bring back ritual context that might be missing or stripped away. Um, but then also we try to have work that lives in other kinds of spaces as well. Um, I mean, so as part of the nonprofit Rainbow Serpent, one of the things we do is organize multi-day retreats. Um, one of the programs that we do is called Harnessing the Power of Creation Through African Ritual, which is three days of meditation, dreaming work, um, ritual body painting and dance, and really trying to take some of these modalities and make them more embodied. Um, have people doing libation ceremonies at pools of water, um, getting people out into nature. So I think we are interested in creating work that is trying to divinize and spiritualize all of the spaces that we're entering. And so we're trying to create work for, you know, these kind of high art spaces, but then we're also trying to think about community centers, theaters, natural spaces as well as part of the larger project that we're doing. Yeah. And I would just add as well, and we also do public artwork because I think one of the things that we are thinking about is, you know, how to share these divine images of blackness, of this kind of primordial androgynous blackness of these African cosmologies with as wide an audience as possible. You know, people might not go to a museum, but you might be driving down the highway and then you have this image of this these divine queer androgynous black deities like being streamed to you and entering into your consciousness. And so I think we think about there being a larger cultural terrain and a larger cultural battlefield that we are um, engaging in that is beyond, that includes museum spaces, but it also goes beyond museum spaces as well. I think of uh, an episode again, if people want to learn a little bit more about that, we, we had an episode where we talked with the folks at the Field Museum in Chicago, uh, the people who are redoing the indigenous uh, hall there. It's now an indigenous led, this is a museum that once upon a time, like displayed humans as, exhibits and uh now they're doing the work of a lot of hard work of returning or opening conversation with a lot of indigenous nations that have been very harmed by that past so check that out if you want a little bit more from our podcast here i you've talked about the creation story a, a couple times here I, what what does having a creation story do for people or, or having access to it and and kind of the opposite, what does being separated from that creation of story, that, that understanding of the, the foundation of, of themselves, what does that do to a group of people? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And creation stories are so important. And in many ways, we still need a science of creation stories to really delve um, into this particular topic. I would say I draw here on the Jamaican philosopher Sylvia Winter, who talks a lot about origin stories and narratives of origin. And she basically makes the argument that human beings are not simply biological creatures, that we are a mix of mythos and logos. I mean, we're both flesh and story. Um, she makes the case that 
human beings create narratives about who we are, the meaning of life, the structure of the material world that then actually determined how we perceive and experience the world, that the narratives we tell literally shape our neurological uh, modes of perception, our understanding of possibilities, our understanding of human potential in ways that then really give us a map for how we experience the world. So for instance, if you have a creation story that talks about the power of consciousness to, let's say, um, change the weather or to for human beings to be able to levitate or about all kinds of powers that might seem to be quote unquote supernatural, if you have a, a narrative in which that is possible, it opens a different way of relating to yourself, to understanding how the physics of the world works. And I would say in her case, probably changes the physics of the world in certain cases. Um, so I would say this piece around understanding who we are kind of helps to understand how to live, how to organize a political state, how to think about family, how to understand one's own destiny and the purpose of one's life, and to really get a sense of what is worth striving for, sacrificing for, living for. So these, these we're calling them stories, but I think probably more accurately, we can see them as maps of unfolding, of how to organize a life, a relationship to ancestors, and a relationship to the larger, other than human world. And I would just add from a, like for like a tangible example of how creation stories have an impact. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that my family is from Nigeria and we're Igbo uh, and that, you know, I have family members even today who are still in Nigeria, who grew up in Nigeria and the, they don't know any of our creation stories. The only creation story they know is of Adam and Eve. And it really then makes sense how they then, when they found out about my sexuality, under, they were said, oh, it's un-African to be LGBTQ. It doesn't exist. And so it then, when I actually went and studied our cosmology, it was then fascinating for me to learn about this whole, all of these queer androgynous black deities within the cosmological system, you know, Oma, Chineke, Agu. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And also the way in which, because you had these queer androgynous deities, there was this sacred role and space for people not identify as being queer within these cosmological systems. You know, we were understood as being the gatekeepers to the spirit world. We were the ones who were the diviners, the shamans, the mystics, the healers, the people who took people on initiations, on shamanic journeys as well. And so when I reconnected with my creation, with, this, with these creation stories, it provided me with an understanding of my own divine sacred purpose on this planet and on this, on this dimensional plane. And then when I then had the opportunity working with Marcus and the, and the collective artists that we have with Rainbow Serpent to then create artwork around these figures and then to be sharing them through public artwork, sharing them through film screenings, sharing them through podcasts and conversations like this, 
you then are then sharing that with a, this, this cosmology with a large number of people. So even my those same family members then, when they saw the film that you saw at MIT, Sean, for example, they were so astounded. They're like, wow, I never heard, even my aunt was like, I'd never heard any, she'd never heard our creation story. And it just totally reconfigured her understanding of what, quote unquote, I, our identity and our um, our place is on this planet as a whole. And so I think that's also part of the mission of what we're doing by retelling and reconnecting people in a contemporary context to these ancestral creation myths. Yeah, you know, I really feel that in, in my own work. Like, I remember feeling very isolated from the LGBTQ community uh, in, in my earlier days um, because I had an, a vision of, like, what it is. And then I'm, I've always been a historian ever since I was a kid. I loved going to museums. And, and, and somewhere along the line, I, I learned about LGBT history and the, the creation stories in LGBT history, so to speak. And, and that was a huge moment for me in suddenly feeling connected to a much wider community in a way that I hadn't before. And, and I see that. In, in again the context of the LGBT community, like so many people are kind of divorced and separated from that history. That's why I'm so glad that we're doing this podcast miniseries. Um, but like, they maybe know they they might think that LGBT history started at Stonewall, or if they're young, they might think that RuPaul's Drag Race was like the first moment in in LGBT history. And uh, but when I've had a chance to share with others, just like you just described, um, there, there's this hunger for learning more and, and wanting to feel connected to uh, a history and a community that's much broader than perhaps anyone realized. Doing this kind of historical work is, is transformative. I mean, the first recorded gay couple in human history is an ancient Egyptian couple, Nyakanum and Kanumatep, from like 2500 BC, um, they're actually carved in their tomb, standing, looking at each other face to face. Um, and so there's a tremendous history of LGBT history on the African continent that needs to be revived and celebrated and understood and extended into um, our own current moment. And even drawing on what Mikkel was saying about the importance of of knowing these stories, even for this particular cultural group. And it was interesting because our film only covered one specific narrative, but even in the Igbo case alone, there are at least nine different cosmological paradigms that are thinking in different ways about creation from different angles. I mean, in some cases, there's one narrative about, let's say this cosmic spider um, is kind of spinning this kind of interesting cosmic thread um, has this, egg that explodes, the threads come out, etc. Um, but in that narrative, you can see a certain kind of prefiguration of string theory about these kind of vibrating cosmic strings that connect all of the different parts of the universe. Um, so there's like a lot of, of scientific knowledge that's there to um, still be unfolded from these narratives. Um, there's tons of, of, of systems there that are actually in danger of being lost because of many reasons. I mean, colonialism, racism, um, monotheistic prejudice, certain kinds of enlightenment, prejudice of enlightenment knowledge systems, um, a certain kind of homophobia in certain cases. Um, so really reviving 
these systems and doing this work, it's also taking a stand against certain forms of, of oppressive social conditions, oppressive conditions that are just surrounding us in the, in the moment. Part of that work is being done today by people like yourselves, but other black artists uh, working and creating literature, music, film. Uh, there's, this, there's this broad term that we call Afrofuturism, which is, uh, I think a lot of people think of books, perhaps like science fiction, but I don't know. How do you, how do you define Afrofuturism? What is it to you? That's a good question. Um, I would say Afrofuturism, I would say at its most successful, I would say it's work that's trying to investigate both the ancient origins and the future destinies of African people. It's thinking about how can we look toward the past, revive the past, understand the past differently in order to propel ourselves to new worlds, newer visions, um, more holistic living situations, and more transcendent kinds of living situations. Um, so it's all about these interesting time warps of how to kind of take the best from the past while moving forward, almost like the Sankofa bird that's moving forward while looking at the past. Yeah, and it really goes across many different media. You mentioned literature, Sean, but you also see this in visual art, music, fashion. And so, yeah, I really agree with Marcus saying, you know, I think there, you know, we really see it really at its height and its most successful really when it is doing this investigation of the past simultaneously as a way to reinvigorate and revitalize our present and future selves. Do you consider your own work Afrofuturist? Do you consider yourself Afrofuturist artist? I would say that we consider ourselves more so as um, traditional African cosmologists, um, I think we are definitely in conversation with the larger um, understood field of Afrofuturism. I mean, for example, we are part of a current exhibition at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History on Afrofuturism. And so, and that includes the work of incredible artists that we see such a strong resonance with, for example, like Sun Ra. Um, and Sun Ra features really heavily in that work. And there's you know, Sun Ra never described himself as an Afrofuturist. But you see with him, you know, he was drawing explicitly from African cosmologies and particularly ancient Egypt as a way to rearticulate a vision of blackness in the present and the future, again, grounded in our ancestral understandings. And so, for example, there are people who are within this larger umbrella that's now understood as Afrofuturist who we are, we are strongly resonant with. Um, and we describe ourselves personally as these African cosmologists because we're making really explicit references to specific mythologies, but we are definitely in conversation with the mm -hmm. larger thrust and um, aspirations of many Af people in this Afrofuturist space. So you mentioned Sun Ra. <laughs> uh, Marcus, I know you especially spent a lot of time like academically uh, in working with Sun Ra's work. Uh, you talk and some of your essays about the way his art really bridged the, the physical and, and his perceptions of the of the metaphysical. And for people who might know him only as a musician, can you share a little bit more about what you found in his work? Yes. I mean, Sun Ra is a, an artist, a thinker that really transcends all boundaries. Uh, for those who don't know who he is, he was born in 1914 in Alabama, most known as a jazz musician that started 
his career maybe in the 1940s. He died in the mid nineties. Um, yeah. So he, his work really spans the entire history of jazz from big band, new Orleans, ragtime swing, all the way to the most avant-garde explorations of keyboard music and fusion and electronic sounds. Um, but most people do not know him also as a poet, for example. So in about 2005, there was a public publication called The Immeasurable Equation that brought together all of his poetry that he would write on the jackets of his albums, on napkins, on letters that he would send out to people that would encapsulate this very rich space philosophy, one could call it, um, these themes about understanding, um, going out into the spaceways, leaving planet Earth behind, um, space is the place. I'm really trying to understand pushing out into the farthest limits of human understanding and perception, tapping into the void, um, tapping into the omniverse and the lands beyond the omniverse. Um, so before I became a full-time artist, I was actually a English professor and wrote some essays around about Sunrise poetry and really trying to understand it, the knowledge claims that it's making, its relationship to a whole tradition of esoteric philosophy, um, to a whole tradition of experimental African-American cultural production. Um, so I would say his poetry, parts of it almost read um, like Zen proverbs. He gives you these mind puzzles to think about. Um, I mean, so I, one goes along the lines of something like, um, you know, if you could give up something, why would you not give up your death? I mean, so it's making you think about immortality and life, death, our relationship with space in very unique ways. Um, and even beyond his poetry, one could even think about him as a performance artist. I mean, he's wearing these extravagant costumes that would blend references to ancient Egypt and Egyptian deities with these large headpieces sometimes that would be up. Yes, exactly. Um, with these kinds of crowns with horns and things like that. I'm drawing on an ancient Egyptian legacy mixed with images of Saturn, which is a planet that was very important to him and, and um, understandings of the stars and things like that. So even just in the costumes and use of dress, he was moving well beyond conventional images and imagery that jazz musicians of the day would use. Um, and also with the band that he called the orchestra that he performed with, there was really no boundary between practice and performance because they all lived together. They all practiced for maybe 20 plus hours a day. I mean, Sunra himself, I mean, they created hundreds of albums, thousands of songs. I mean, so there was this efflorescence of creativity of really trying to understand what does this new space age, particularly in, again, the 50s, the 60s, at the height of his work, what does this new space age mean for Black people? How does this confrontation of seeing the Blackness of space for the first time in this kind of way of actually landing on the moon and really being able to push into a new era of human history. 
How does this make us rethink our relationship to internal blackness, to a metaphysical blackness? What does this new understanding of the blackness of space mean for the future of black people on the planet here? Um, So he was asking very forward-thinking questions, very unusual questions, asking questions that really still have not been fully answered even to this day. So he's a guidepost for a lot of the work that we do. And even in our film on the Primordial House, uh, we definitely incorporated some subtle sunrise touches. Mm-hmm. So um, there was a painter and illustrator, Aya Atten, that he worked with for creating some of those surrealistic album covers that he released. Um, and in the film, there's a huge explosion of the sacred chamber that is the crux of the film. And it's that explosion that opens a space for the dualistic universe that we now inhabit. And after that big explosion happens, when the camera pans back to the set, it is a um, an image of chaos, destruction. And we use those paintings of Aya Atten as our inspiration for what this kind of destruction, but this creative destruction that opens a space for our universe to emerge what it looks like. This motif that Sun Ra goes back to uh, talking about cosmic visions and uh, of, of being an alien even from, from another place. It's, it's not uncommon in LGBTQ plus circles too. I, I've, I've seen it, especially in stories of trans people, uh, a very prominent trans person on YouTube is named Juno Birch. And she like literally paints herself different colors and, like part of her online persona is to be an alien out of the fifties, sort of the Mars attacks style thing. And, and, but she's not the only trans person that really kind of plays with this notion of being an alien as a result of being alienated uh, from a gender binary and, and from a, a society that really forces it on them. I'm curious how else you've seen this idea of, of the human alien play out in the art that you've made or that you've experienced. Absolutely. It's a really strong theme that you see evoked in many traditional African cosmological systems that we are researching and referencing within our work. So, for example, the Dogen, who we've mentioned um, a bit in passing throughout this conversation, are an ethnic group from modern-day Mali. And they have this really richly articulated cosmological system that centers around the Sirius star system. And they, in the Nomo cosm, in the in their in their cosm, in the Dogen cosmology, the primordial androgynous creator Ama births from themselves these eight half snake, half hu- part human, androgynous, bisexual, self-fertilizing figures that become the ancestors of humanity. And what's also really fascinating within the cosmology is that one of the Nomo in particular creates this celestial arc. And in the celestial arc, they place the embryos of humanity and all of the plants and the animals. And they descend through through 14 dimensions to the planet Earth And then this celestial arc lands on the planet, this humanoid alien 
exits exits the arc with humans walking behind them now fully developed and then becomes the brings water to the planet and fertilizes the planet and so you see within this cosmology this inextricable connection to these queer androgynous human humanoid aliens and it's also really fascinating because it's then evoked you know as this is the cosmology it's then evoked in, for example, the adornment and jewelry that people would wear in a Dogen context. You know, for example, that jewelry would be used to make their bodies resemble more the Nomo, these and these humanoid alien figures. And so the artwork itself was also tied into it. And, it, and so, for example, in our work, too, we are also making depictions of the Nomo. We are, you know, for example, in the series Infinite Essence um, that I... Um, that I photographed. There are several images of the Nomo that are in, that are part of that series, and so we are really thinking about that historical link that African systems have been thinking about with our connection to the to space and to these humanoid alien figures, as you will, if we could describe them as such. Yeah, it's it's tricky to figure out what exact label to, to try to <laughs> apply there. Uh, so you brought up infinite. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Marcus. No, I didn't have much to add. Um, but there's so much to really unpack, even in Sun Ra's story, um, because he talks about being abducted by aliens, and he claims that this happened to him in 1936. Um, which was much earlier than your standard UFO narratives, which kind of started around the 50s. Um, he talks about being taken to Saturn and being put on a stage, communicating with these different beings there and being told that he was supposed to transform the world through music. And so this outerworldly, otherworldly experience became such a grounding myth of origin for him and a way in which he understood his purpose and his direction in life. I, mean, I don't necessarily have a lot to I would need to refresh myself on the details of that vision, but um, one could think about it in a history of, of, of thinkers, of prophets who have connections with the divine, maybe not necessarily articulated in an extraplanetary way, but there are similarities with even a figure like John and his revelation. Um, and, and how people in these alternate states can find themselves located in different places or speaking with different kinds of beings. Um, that Sun Ross story is just, just a very interesting part of his life that I just don't hear many people delving into very deeply. So, yeah, so I would say on one hand, two different things. So on one hand, you have deities that are depicted as androgens, as both kind of male and female, and the more primordial the deity is or the closer to creation they are, the more likely they are to be depicted in this androgynous fashion. Um, but then there are other deities in the kind of standard Yoruba pantheon that people invoke more consistently, folks like Obatala, um, Oshun, Eshu. Those figures have many, many different paths or many different manifestations. And a figure like Obatala, for instance, even though he's often depicted as an old man with the white beard, there are, are paths of him where he appears as a woman or as a feminine figure. Um, so we're really trying to 
bring back that kind of sense of fluidity and that expansiveness of how these figures work and what this expansiveness means for us in our kind of daily lives. Because I think if we really took them seriously or took these dynamics seriously, we would have to think about everything from the family to marriage to education differently. Um, we have to kind of think about how those expanded possibilities can be embodied in the institutions that we live in and work in. Um, and, and I think there's still such a deep archive and reservoir of opportunity that is there kind of waiting for us to tap into um, once we kind of understand the fullness of who some of these figures are. Mikhail, you mentioned uh, the your your work, Infinite Essence, which is a series of photos. One of the, the most striking for me, I thought, was your piece called The Flying African. Can you share a little bit about that piece and the story behind it? Yeah. Um, so just a bit of context on the Infinite Essence series. This series I created using a combination of you know, art and engineering, which is also making references to traditional ways in which African artisans didn't see divisions between these um, these um, disciplines. And so I built a camera flash that only transmits ultraviolet light. And then I hand paint the bodies of my models with fluorescent paints. And then in total darkness, I click down on the shutter. And for a fraction of a second, a beam of ultraviolet light is emitted from the camera flash. It interacts with the paint on the model's bodies. They absorb the energy of the ultraviolet light, and for a fraction of a second, it's re-emitted as a form of fluorescence in the visible spectrum. And so the series is really thinking about when we move beyond the visible spectrum by interacting with this invisible spectrum of light, um, ultraviolet light, we see blackness illuminated as its true um, essence as it is depicted within um, African cosmologies as this divine cosmic source from which all life emerges. The piece, the Flying African that you mentioned, Sean, it depicts um, is if people look, people will search my name and the Flying African, it'll come up. But it it depicts a figure flying through the blackness of space, and it references a particular African American myth from the coasts of South Carolina and Georgia, where enslaved Africans were able to escape bondage by taking flight and returning to their African homelands. And this piece is also you know, that myth also references a specific slave rebellion known as Igbo Landing, which took place in that region where enslaved Africans overthrew their captors. And right before they're about to be recaptured, they walked into a creek and they drowned themselves. And they chanted, the water spirit brought us here. The water spirit will take us home. And they flew home into the protection of the primordial um, African creator gods. And so each of the pieces is linked to and reviving specific African diasporic mythological narratives, um, connecting us in the in the contemporary to these past narratives to, um, as we've been discussing throughout this conversation, as a way to reinvigorate a vision for our collective future. What, what I find so interesting in that story, too, is it's like, uh, I'll be clear, I'm not trying to minimize when I say the word science fiction. Uh, but like when we think of science fiction or speculative fiction um, as like a genre, we think of it as so modern. Uh, and yet 
There are so many, like even W.E.B. Dubois, who was a black activist, wrote a story, a short story, like a long, long time ago, before science fiction as a, as a genre coalesced, that we would consider science fiction. It's about a, a comet that crosses paths with the Earth, and I think it's set in New York City, and uh, everybody dies, or so they think, except for a, a black man and a rich white woman, and they have to figure out. They are the Adam and Eve, so to speak, and they have to figure out how that's going to work. And it goes even further back. You know, you've t- talked about the stories that the enslaved people share. It's, I, I like learning about these things uh, because, again, it, it feels so connected to, to a rich past that people just don't know about. Well, yeah, well, and I would say that this actually goes back really to the very beginnings of human civilization, I mean, even if you look in the Egyptian context at the site Napta Playa um, down in South Egypt, I mean, this is like the world's first um, astronomical observatory. I mean, you get basically this circle, the stone circle of these megalithic stones that were placed in certain patterns with these underground structures um, that could track the solstices, the equinoxes, alignments with Ar- the belt of Orion, Sirius. Um, so even at the very beginning of what we could think of as ancient Egyptian culture, we see this very intense need to understand the stars, to understand um, our place within cosmic cycles, and really building structures we could think of as art or performance installations or whatever kind of new or contemporary names we want to put on it, but building structures that would align us with larger cycles that would give us a machine of sorts to bring down cosmic influences or a machine that would help us peer out into the larger sky um, and, and really kind of understanding, you know, how culture is supposed to be built in conversation with, with these larger cycles and dynamics. Um, and so I say, I would say there's a, a deep history of black cultural production that's engaged with understanding and following the stars and trying to reproduce their motion on earth. Um, so I would say well before Afrofuturism. And I think this is what I like about Sun Ra's intervention, because I think he says, or would say that the ancient is already the most futuristic. Um, that is not necessarily that there's this progress narrative where we're moving and becoming more and more sophisticated, but we're kind of recovering the sophistication that our ancestors have already put into place and that our goal is more one of recovery of the future that's located in the past than this kind of linear move into kind of progress and scientific evolution. Over the course of the last hour of our conversation, you've, you've talked about a number of different unique and and disparate African cosmologies. What do you think, uh, what level of concern do you think black artists who are working in this sphere should have about not kind of homogenizing these disparate cultures? And I think that's, that's an interesting question because the thing that's been really fascinating has been the more research that I've done, that we've done um, into these cosmologies, the more similarities we've seen between them. And so we, for example, you know, within all of these different different African cosmologies, 
there's this primordial androgynous blackness from which the universe emerges. And even the way in which this is described has so many similarities. For example, Amun-Ra in an Egyptian Kemetic context, Ama in a Dogen context, Oma in a Igbo context. So even the words themselves are very similar. The understanding is very similar and very shared. And so I would argue that the concern is very should be very, very low because there's actually more um, that can, there's more exciting possibilities that can be found by connecting all of these rich cosmologies to one another at their, at their source than there is from trying to separate and divide them, which has also been something that we've been seeing actually just from the history of colonialism itself, separating and dividing all of these traditions and, um, into separate categories when there's actually this deeply shared commonality that you can actually see when you actually do the research and go into the ancestral sources. Well, we've, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Is there anything you two wanted to talk about that we didn't hit? I know we didn't get all the questions, but... Uh... Yeah, so I would say, particularly for this audience, uh, since we're talking to the Museum of Flight, um, just wanted to just do a shout out to another artist that I've been really inspired by, whose work I've seen that I think this audience would appreciate or find very interesting. And I'm not sure um, if you've heard, Sean, about Michael Richards. Not off the top of my head, no. Okay, yeah, so I actually, we came across his work very recently at the North Carolina Museum of Art. And so he was a relatively young black artist who was actually killed in 9-11. He was in the towers when um, it was struck by the planes. But the thing about his work that's really trippy is that the work that he produced seemed to foresee and pretell his death. Um, because he did a lot of work that was engaged with the history of African-Americans in flight. So there are a lot of like sculptures of the Tuskegee Airmen, I mean, and a lot of airplanes and things like that that were in his work. So he had one piece called um, Tar Baby versus St. Sebastian. So it's this giant statue of him um, dressed as a Tuskegee Airman. And for those who don't know, the Tuskegee Airman was a squadron of, of black um, fighter pilots in World War II. Um, and he, so he's dressed as a Tuskegee Airman and it's kind of borrowing on that image of St. Sebastian with all of the arrows stuck in his body. But instead of arrows, he has like these airplanes that are like piercing his flesh in different places, which, I mean, of course, is very reminiscent of the planes kind of crashing into the tower. Um, so it's just a very strange kind of, of, of work. Um, there's another painting called His Eyes on the Sparrow, that has these kind of falling planes with parachutes and a bullseye on the parachute. Um, or another image of him as a Tuskegee Airman, um, but it's a sculpture that's kind of done in the style of the Congo and Kisi statues with like the nails in them. So like the statue is kind of situated on a platform with like a basket to kind of catch it as it falls. Um, so I think, you know, if you haven't seen his work, and you're interested in like the history of African-Americans and flight, I think you will find that work very interesting, a little scary, um, a little eerie, because it's like, it kind of makes you think about like, okay, could he foresee, did he prophetize something? Like, did, could he see in the future when he was creating these things? Um, 
but yeah, but just uh, something else, a different kind of body of work for you to check out. And I would also, you know, I think we've also been talking about a lot of these spaces of historical revival, revival of ancestral um, traditions as a way to reinvigorate the future. And um, so with Rainbow Serpent, Marcus and I were currently working on a series of 16 glass sculptures of queer African deities. And this series will be debuting next year, May 3rd, 2024, at the Pittsburgh Glass Center. And will be up until the end of July. So if anyone's in Pittsburgh, please um, feel free to stop by. But again, we're thinking about how reviving these deities in a contemporary context and providing a cosmology can be a way to rearticulate our understanding of, as Marcus has mentioned, society as a whole, education, politics, culture. And we're also, again, working with different different media. You know, we are also working on a virtual reality extension of the work, immersive projections. Marcus is working on a book to also accompany to accompany the work and to detail the cosmology. And so there's a lot coming up uh, for us. And we encourage people to follow us on social media. If you look up our names, Mikkel Awuna, M-I-K-A-E-L-O-W-U-N-N-A, then Marcus, M-A-R-Q-U-E-S dot R-E-D-D. You can find me on Instagram or MarcusRed.com. Yep. And you can also check us out on, if you want to learn more about Rainbow Serpent and the work that we do with our nonprofit, we host a lot of, we create artistic productions, but we also host workshops for people who are interested in coming to our workshops or hosting them at their institutions about African spirituality and some of the conversations we've been having today. We also host retreats, you know, we host artists in residence. So you can also, people can learn more about our work on our website, www.therainbowserpent.org or on Instagram at Rainbow Serpent Inc. And we'll include links to all those in our show notes, along with a link to some of the episodes of the podcast we've done about Tuskegee Airmen. And uh, we've mentioned a few others throughout here. Well, thank you, Marcus and Mikkel. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Perfect. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Yeah, it's been an amazing conversation and so excited for the podcast and for everything that's to come. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Now, if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, it happens to be Giving Tuesday, a huge annual day of philanthropy across the United States. We're so grateful to all of our donors because you are the ones who make this show and all of our museum programming possible. I encourage you to give to a nonprofit that's close to your heart today. And if that's the Museum of Flight, you can give by going to museumofflight.org slash podcast and clicking the yellow donate button. Marcus and Mikkel's Rainbow Collective is also a nonprofit, and I'll leave a link to them in the show notes if you'd like to show them support. You can find links to the other things we talked about in the episode, like the art of Michael Richards, in the show notes at museumofflight.org slash podcast. This season, we've been leaving space for listeners to really react to the show. And I have to say, I've had some amazing experiences the past few weeks from listeners who've reached out and shared some of their own stories and experiences. Uh, so thank you to those of you who have taken that leap and, and contacted the show. If something you heard today in today's episode resonated with you or you want to share your own story, you can reach us at podcast at museumofflight.org. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. 
Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to you, everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>